If you have your Bibles, we are in uh, James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We're just going to read briefly in James tonight, and then I'm going to flip over into Hebrews and look at a couple scriptures there. Um, But last week we looked at this passage in James in a negative way. But tonight I want to look at it in a more positive way. Um, in a more positive manner. We'll begin reading in James chapter 3, verse 3. We put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look at the ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so the tongue. Even so the tongue. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. James has told us even in chapter 1, he was talking about uh, in verse 26, he says, "If, if anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart and his religion is useless. He's drawing pictures here. He's talking about a bridle and a bit. I, I was raised with horses. I, I told you this last week. We, we owned three horses, Samson, Delilah, and Dolly. <laughs> they were a stallion, an Appaloosa, and a pony, and I loved those horses. And even as a little girl, when I was teensy, tiny little thing, I could ride those big, massive horses because they had a bit and a bridle. And what would happen is even the most wild horse, if you just put a bit in its mouth, and a bridle on its head, you could direct that horse and control where you wanted it to go. You could lead it wherever you wanted it to go. We talked about a cruise ship or a regular ship and how a massive ship is controlled by a tiny rudder, that you can change the course of a massive ship just with a tiny little rudder. And James is drawing, he's using those pictures And he's saying, you can control a massive horse with a bridle. You can put a bit in a horse's mouth and control them. A little tiny rudder can control and change the course of a ship. How much more your tongue, your mouth can do that very same thing. He's saying, just a tiny spark can set a horse, a a forest on fire. And your tongue, when it gets a spark, can do either some damage or it can make a huge impact. Can I just tell you? Last week we talked about the damage that our tongue can do. This week I want to talk about the good that our tongue can do. If you turn over to Proverbs uh, chapter 18, Proverbs chapter 18, I want to talk to you tonight about changing the course of our life using our tongue as a rudder to change the course of our life, using our tongue as a bit to bridle and bring into control our flesh and lead it on a different path in life. Anybody besides me want to bridle their flesh just a little bit? If this week your word fast didn't prove that to you, I I don't know what will. Proverbs chapter 18, I want to read, Verses 20 and 21. You know the scripture. We talked about it a bit last week that death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
But I want to read that verse to you tonight from the Amplified. I, I know you might be tempted to look down in your own translation, but I want you to just listen to me as I read from the, the Amplified. It's actually the AMPC. A man's moral self shall be filled with the fruit of his mouth and with the consequence of his words he must be satisfied whether good or evil death and life are in the power of the tongue and they who indulge in it shall eat the fruit of it for death or life now let me read that same verse just actually verse 21 in the amplified it says death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it and indulge in it anybody besides me indulge sometimes in our tongue indulge in it will eat its fruit and bear the consequences of their words did you hear that that those who love to indulge in their mouth will bear the consequences of their words I particularly like the good news translation in these verses it says you will have to live with the consequences of everything you say what you say can preserve life or destroy it so you must accept the consequences of your words. The New Century Version says people will be rewarded for what they say. They will be rewarded by how they speak. What you say can mean life or death. Those who speak with care will be rewarded. So clearly, death and life are in the power of the tongue. It's interesting to me that that word death in the Hebrew, and this this uh, definition is coming directly out of the, the complete word study dictionary of the New Testament. I'm writing it just as they, as they published it. It says that death, it, it actually means death. But because death and disease, and hear me, because death and disease are so intimately related and due to the context, the word suggests the intended meaning of deadly disease, plague, epidemic, and pestilence. Death is in the power of the tongue. Disease. Now, I'm not saying all disease. Hear me loud and clear. I'm not going to say all disease. But I'm going to show you tonight how what's coming out of our mouth can truly influence our life for life and death. Certainly not all disease. It's appointed to man to die once and then face judgment. I, I'm not saying that, that, that we cause disease, but I will tell you that if you look up that word in the Hebrew, it does mean disease, pestilence, sickness is in the power of the tongue. I'll let you chew on that for a while. But, but figuratively, this term expresses the idea of ruin and destruction especially when contrasted with the desirable notions of life, prosperity, and happiness. And that's what the writer of Proverbs is doing here. He's contrasting death with life. He's saying life and death is in the power of the tongue. And that word life, I love this, it means reviving, especially in the springtime. If you think about the springtime, it follows a hard winter, does it not? And, and don't you just love spring because it's been a hard, cold winter and everything is dead and, and it looks just gloomy and, and blue and all of a sudden flowers start poking up out of the ground and, and the crocus start blooming and the daffodils start blooming and there's new life and you can see the ground is being revived and that's what the word is there, that we have the power to revive our life just with our words. Just with our words. Life and death 
are in the power of the tongue. That word life also means lively, vigorous, flourishing, prospering. Oh, I wonder how many of you here tonight long to flourish. You long to prosper. You long to get out of those dead places and those lifeless places that, that you're living. Can I tell you what? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. That's why the scripture says that man does not live by bread alone. Everybody know that scripture? Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every what? Every word. Anybody want to guess what that word is? Rhema. Man does not live, you and I do not live by bread alone, but by every word, every rhema that proceeds from the mouth of God. Can I tell you what? This word right here, it's powerful. It's active. It never, ever returns void. When we read it, when we study it, when we put it in ourselves, when it, when it gets down deep in our heart, God promises that it will perform that which it say he sent it to do, that it will never return to him void, that it will work in your life. Can I tell you, this word is working in your life. Father, I declare that over them tonight, that this word is working in their life, that the word that's being spoken in this place tonight will not return void. It will go forth and prosper in their hearts and in their minds and in their spirits. And, and I thank you, Father, for that. This word works. It's powerful, it's active, and it never returns void. So man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Death and life are in the power of our tongue. So therefore, when we speak the word of God, the rhema of God, man shall not what? Live prosper, flourish by bread alone. We're going to flourish and prosper when we begin to, to, to eat up this word, when we, get, when we begin to indulge in this word, when we begin to feast on that word. New life will come. If you're here tonight and you're experiencing dead places in your life, when you're not flourishing, you don't feel like anything in your life is prospering, get in that word till it gets in you. Because I promise you, man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You've heard me say a million times that word rhema. There are two words for word in, in the original language. Word logos is just the written word, what I'm reading. Some of you just read. You just read in Logos. But then there's Rhema. And Rhema is a word that God is, speaks to you as you study. He speaks it and it gets in deep in your spirit. It goes down to your heart because the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. And you see, when we fill ourselves up with the word of God, when we sit with that word and we get it deep in our heart, when we just don't read it for the logos, when we say, Lord, I'm sitting here till I get a rhema, till I get an aha moment, till I get a ready word that you spoke to me and it penetrated me and it got deep down inside of me that I will never be the same because that's my word from you. And I, that, that comes when you meditate on the word, when you study the word, when you 
you sit with the word till it sits with you, till you, till you just you take that word with you wherever you go. You're thinking on it all the time. I promise you, you will get the rhema. You will get the aha that will absolutely change your life. But man does not live by bread alone. He lives by the rhema. The word of God, the spoken word of God, not by Logos, not by getting up in the morning saying, I think I'll read this word. Oh, it's so boring. <laughs> got to get my laundry done. Got to get to work. I'm going to give him five minutes to speak to me. That's not how you live. That's not going to help you prosper. It's not going to help you flourish. It's when we sit in that word, when we spend time with him, when we're intimate with him, when we connect with him. Davy's here. If all I did in, when, we, when we woke up in the morning and saying, hey, baby, how are you? And I went on with my life and just did whatever I wanted all day long and waved to him every once in a while, would we have intimacy? No. I want to be intimate with my man, and I do that by spending time with him, by getting to know him, by, 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 by just talking with him and, and interacting with him. And that's how we are intimate with God as well. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word, every rhema, every word that, that proceeds from the mouth of God. Death and life are in the power of of the tongue, that word power, metaphorically, it, sim it signifies strength or power or authority. Remember my Tyler story, it, authority or right of possession. Do you know that if you're here and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are joint heirs with Christ? There's an inheritance that you are entitled to. These promises are yea and amen to you. They're yours. They're promises from God to you. They're promises from a God who not, will not lie, a God who cannot lie. Those are two different things. He is not a God who will not lie. Maybe I might feel like it today. I might not. He's a God who cannot. It's, it's outside of his character. It's impossible, the word of God says, for him to lie. He's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He's not sorry he said these things. And so you can hold him to it. This is truth right here. It's truth. And you have a right to possession because you are a joint heir with him. These are his promises to you. He has promised his word to us. He's a promise keeper. And so we need to take possession of them. If I had something here that I wanted Karen to have, I could want her to have it all. I could beg her to take it. But she, in order to possess it and make it her own, would have to take it from me, would she not? She would have to, to make it her own. And you and I have the right to possession, but we have got to choose to take possession of it. Take possession of his promises. Take possession uh, of, of the things that, 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 that we are entitled to as joint heirs in Christ. The word power means authority. I told you we have been given authority. Death and life are in the power, the authority of the tongue. If I want to make an arrest of the enemy, I'm not going to say, God, could you take care of him? Could you, could you handle this for me? Could you, could you come and tell him a thing or two? What's God going to say? I've given you authority. It's like the chief of police. He's not going to come and make the arrest for Tyler. He's going to say, Tyler, you got the badge of authority. Make the arrest yourself. 
And you and I have got to understand that death and life are in the power of our tongue. And we defeat the enemy the same exact way that Jesus defeated the enemy when he was being tempted in the wilderness. Oh, you don't think Jesus was tempted, do you? He was a man just like you and I. He was tempted in every single way that you and I have been tempted, yet without sin. Do you understand that? We don't have a high priest that can't sympathize with us. He was tempted in every way we were. He endured temptation the same way that you and I are tempted. And he gave us an example of how we should fight it, how to get free from it. He says, no temptation will ever seize you but what is common to man. And when you are tempted, he will always give you a way of escape. But we've got to take it. We've got to take possession of it, if you will. So when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, how did he fight Satan? Somebody tell me. The word of God, it is written. He didn't come back and say, when, when Satan said, turn these, br this bread, these rocks into bread, he didn't say, you know, I really am kind of hungry. I've been fasting for 40 days. My stomach's been growling like crazy, and maybe God would understand if I did it. I'm, I'm sure he would forgive me if I, if I did it. He didn't do that. He came back, and he didn't even entertain that voice. You see, where we go wrong is we entertain it. We listen to it. We need to arrest it. We've got to take authority. We've got to make the arrest. We've got to silence the enemy, and we do it the same way that Jesus did it. We use our mouth because life and death are in the power of the mouth. We have authority. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. That word tongue is just the instrument of speech. He's saying you've got to speak it. We don't think it. We don't wish it, we speak it the same way we talked last week about in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, the Bible says that the world was chaos and it was disorder. There wasn't any order to it and it was dark, it was covered with darkness and that the Spirit of God was hovering, hovering over it. Can I just tell you that nothing changed when the Spirit of God was hovering? That strikes me. That's just, you know, we want Spirit of God, just follow me. Follow me afresh. Do a mighty work inside of me. But what's so interesting to me is the Spirit of God was there. It was hovering over all that chaos, over all that disorder, over all that darkness. But nothing changed until what? Until God spoke. And God spoke and bam, something happened. Because there is power in the word of God. Do you understand that there is power? When he speaks, things change. And can I tell you, church, he is still speaking right here, right here in our mouth. There is the power of life and death right here in our mouth. We are a loaded weapon. We are a loaded weapon, and when we really understand that we have been given authority to arrest the enemy, to arrest death, and to speak life in this place, we will be a force to be reckoned with. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Psalm 103.20 says that angels hearken unto the voice of God's word. Oh, I just love that. One translation says that angels, mighty in strength, that execute his word, hearkening to the voice of his word. Are you with me? Are you, are you, do you, got, do you have that? That angels hearken to the voice of God's word. I don't think for a second that means God says, go do this, and they do it. Although he does command his angels charge over us. I believe they wait listening 
listening. All of creation waits for the sons of God to be made manifest. I think the angels wait for the word of God so they can hearken to it. You see, the Bible says that the angels are ministering servants sent to serve the sons of man. They are here to serve us. Leslie and I often sit in the front row and pray, and one of the things we pray is for angels, ministering angels to be in this place. You think that's ridiculous? Well, let me take you to some scripture that says that, min that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve the sons of man. You are the sons of man. And the scripture says, Psalm 103, 20, I think, that angels hearken to the voice of God's word. If that doesn't make you want to speak it, I don't know what does. There's power of the tongue has the power of life and death. Angels are waiting for us to speak it. Tonight I was driving here and um, I, I often listen to, to something on my phone, scripture on my phone or a sermon on my phone on the way here. And um, I, did you, I was thinking about my phone and how, how many of you have a, an iPhone? You have Siri. Siri is voice activated, is it not? I'll say, hey, Siri. And she'll say, yes, Rio. It's a little freaky. And she recognizes my voice, and she's activated by my voice. Can I tell you, the angels in heaven are activated by your voice when you use the word of God. The Bible says they hearken to the voice of God's word. So let's look at that scripture. So that, that scripture, let's go back to... A man's moral self shall be filled with the fruit of his mouth and the consequences of his words he must be satisfied, whether good or evil. A man's stomach, that's the moral, in, the moral being. That word stomach there means womb. A man's stomach will be satisfied by the fruit of his mouth. That, that word stomach, as I said, means womb. It's a place where offspring are carried. It's a place where anything is generated or produced. In a figurative sense, it means the inner being of a person. A man's stomach will be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth, of his lips. That word satisfied means to be filled with. Fruit, as you know, is the result of one's deeds or one's actions, the offspring. And lips, again, refer to the language that are, originates on the lips. And so what he's saying is a man's inner being will be filled with the offspring of his words. Does that startle anybody besides me? That we will give birth to what we're speaking. How many of you have ever said, I'm worthless, I don't amount to anything, I'm a failure? Man's stomach, inner being, mind, will, emotions will be filled with the fruit of what we're confessing, what we're saying. Because the tongue has the power of life and death. We will be pregnant with the results of what we say. We have to watch our mouth because Scripture says we will bear the consequences of it important what we're putting in to our life what we're speaking into our life I love Dr. Carolyn Leaf I don't know if you've ever heard of her that she's a she's a Christian scientist and and she specializes in the brain and she often talks about how your brain is activated by what you're speaking 
It's, there, it's, it's impacted by your words. She talks about the importance of constantly be speaking God's word because it affects your brain. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's why it's so important that we are putting in God's word. We're speaking God's word over ourselves. We're meditating on it. The word meditate means to mutter with the mouth. I'm constantly muttering. It's not unusual for me to have a scripture in my pocket and I'm in the grocery store line wasting time waiting for somebody to get through the line and I will pull that scripture out and just begin to meditate on it. If you get in my car right now, there's scripture plastered on my, my dashboard because as I'm driving, I'm meditating on that scripture. It's around me all the time, and I'm constantly muttering it under my breath because that's what the word meditate is. Uh, the Lord tells Joshua, let's go there because it's just coming through my head, so let's look at that quick. Joshua 1.9. No, let's go to 6. Be strong and of good courage, uh, for to these people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to the fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, mutter, Replay it in your head day and night. Speak it to yourself day and night so that you may observe to do according to all that's written in it. For then, for then, when you meditate on that word day and night, when you do it, then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Death and life, prosperous, flourishing, abundance is in the power of the tongue. Joshua, meditate, speak it, mutter it all day long, and you will be prosperous in all that you do. There's a connection over our, the word of God to our heart and our mouth, getting it inside of us and letting it flow out of us. We need to get it deep within our heart. When you were a little boy or girl growing up, do you remember, I know that I, I'm dating myself, I don't even think they do this anymore. Do you remember uh, learning the multiplication tables? How did you do that? You learned them by, not memory, by heart. You, I know them by heart. Anybody know? You know, I can, I can tell you that by heart. <laughs> I know that telephone number by heart. <laughs> I know that song by heart. Are you following me? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, speaks. See the importance of knowing Scripture by heart. I can still spout off the multiplication tables as this adult woman because I know them by heart. And you see the same works with God's Word. If you put that in your heart, if you begin to mutter it, when I was learning the multiplication tables, my mom quizzed me every night. We'd go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until I got it deep within my heart. My daughter Kendall, when we were memorizing the book of James, when she was a little girl growing up, I would throw my Bible back in the back seat to her and, and I would just spout it off and she would correct me. She'd say, no, mom, you missed a word. And we'd start back over again. And we just went back and forth, back and forth, just as we were driving down the road until that thing got inside of me. That's what we're called to do with scripture memorization, to just get it into our heart because out of the abundance of the heart, 
the mouth will speak. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 3. If you've missed everything I've said tonight, don't miss this part. This is unbelievable to me. Hebrews chapter 11, I'm sorry, verse 3. This week I had some time with the team. They came over to my house in the morning and we were going over some scriptures and just spending some time with them. And this is one of the scripture that we looked at. But after they left, I saw something I hadn't seen before. And so I just want to share a little bit of it with you. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. I really like the amplified there. It says, now faith is the evidence, the title deed of things not seen. of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I I like that it uses title deed because when we talk about faith there, well, what do you think? What is your definition of faith? One of my favorite is total trust. Do you have total trust in God? Do you have total trust in his word? Are you absolutely convinced that it's truth? Is all your confidence in God And in his word, or is it in your spouse? Is it in your bank account? Is it in your job? Is it in your whatever? Who has your total trust? Maybe nobody does. But faith, I think, the best definition is total trust. Confidence in God's word. Confidence that his word is true. That he is faithful. That he is good. That he will not ever forsake you or let you down. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. That word substance means uh, substructure. It means the foundation. Do you know that when Dave and I were building our house, the longest, what took the longest of, uh, of everything in building that house was the foundation. I thought it would never, ever take place. It it took them forever to dig that hole, to to pour the cement. It just took forever. There was a lot of prep work that went in to to building a secure foundation. Foundations are really important. One time I was looking at buying a home, and it was in a neighborhood that I couldn't afford, but, but it was a really good price, and I loved it because the house was gorgeous. The price was right, and all the houses around it were so much more money. And I was like, score, Lord, you're blessing the socks off of me. I'm going to get this big old beautiful house for a steal. And, and so we were looking at it and had the realtor there, and I was just chomping at the bit. I was so excited that I had this big beautiful house, and I was just sure God was blessing me with such a good price. And we went down into the basement, and, and, and the um, realtor said, oh, Rhea, you do not want to buy this house. And I said, oh, yes, I do. And she said, no, you don't. And, and she pointed out a crack in the foundation. And I said, well, what's the big deal? We can seal that, put a little concrete over top of it. It'll be just fine. And she said, Rhea, you don't understand. A faulty foundation, this house will fall. She said the foundation is the most important part of a home, of a building. 
It holds everything up. And so when the Bible says that faith, total trust, complete confidence in God and his word is the foundation, is the substructure for you to build everything else on. Otherwise, it's faulty and it's going to give out. So you've got to settle it in your mind. I have to settle it in my mind that I believe God is true and everybody else is a liar. That his word is yay and amen. That I can trust in that above all else. That when everything else fails me, God will not. That he is trustworthy. That he is faithful. That he is always good. And that has got to be the foundation of my life. But I love that faith is also the title deed. I talked to you about inheritance and how you and I are entitled to some things. We have to take possession of them, but, but we are entitled. These promises are yea and amen. There are promises. We can stand on them. We can believe in them. We can trust God to bring the fulfillment of them in our life because God's word is already settled in heaven. And so well, when the Bible says that faith, my trust in God's word is my title deed for things hoped for, if I, uh, right now, Dave and I have a, a safe in our house, and the, titles, the title deed to our cars are in the safe. Now, if I went out in the parking lot tonight, and my Jeep Wrangler what was, was gone, somebody had stolen it, I would call the authorities. Are you with me? And I would say, hello, I have a Jeep Wrangler, and somebody stole it, and it belongs to me. And the thief could show up and say, no, this is my Jeep Wrangler. And I'd be like, wait a second, sir. I got a title deed, let me go get it out of the safe. Because that's my proof that that car is mine. And so what, I'd go back to the authorities and I'd say, hey, here's my title deed, that Jeep Wrangler is mine. It belongs to me. Faith, complete trust, confidence in God is my title deed for what I hope for. That, that means when the enemy comes and he tries to, to mislead one of my children, when he tries to, to, to get them off on the wrong path and, and he says to me, I've got them, they're mine, I need to call the authorities and I need to go to the King of Kings and the Lord and Lord of Lords and say, listen, Lord, I got a title deed that says that my sons will be taught by the Lord and great will my children's peace be. The offspring of the righteous are blessed and they are mighty in the land. That boy is coming back. Do you see how it works? Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. My son Tyler, when he got sworn in, my favorite part of the whole time was, was getting a tour of the police department because they took us to the CSI room. I loved it. It was so much fun. I have no idea why they keep all this stuff, but it was this, in my exaggerating day, it was this massive room of evidence. I loved it. I mean, bloody knives, clothing that were just bloodied, just all kinds of stuff. Really nice, like bicycles and all kinds of stuff. Just gloves. I mean, it was amazing just to look on the shelves and see all this stuff. And, and, and it was there from the time that police department got formed. So they kept it all. 
And I'm like, why do you keep it for so long? Why don't you just get rid of it after a case is solved? And, and Tyler said, Mama, you know, we've got new technology coming up all the time, and, and, and something new might come up and be able to prove or disprove somebody's, somebody's innocence. And, and he said, so we'll go back to the evidence room, and we'll pull that evidence, and, and we'll be able to take it to court, and we can prove or disprove somebody's innocence because of it. Now, faith is the evidence of things unseen, the proof. So you know what? When my children or my sons are not behaving like I want them to behave, I'm just going to use that one because it's fresh in my mind, are not behaving the way I want them to behave, and I want to get discouraged and downhearted, I need to say, wait a second, I need to go visit the evidence room and get me some evidence, some proof that God can do what he says he can do. I got this proof here that says it's a promise from God saying, my sons will be taught by the Lord and great will their peace be. And I'm going to go disprove what I'm seeing in the natural because faith is the evidence of things unseen. And so I might be seeing something in the natural, but I'm going to prove it wrong when I get to the evidence room and pull me some evidence right here by faith and say, and I'm going to lay that evidence over what I'm seeing in the natural and say, might be in the natural, but in the supernatural, this case is already solved. Are you with me? So back to Hebrews 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. I could preach on that one forever. Um, the word testimony there is where we get our word martyr. Don't you want the kind of faith that people want to take your life to get you to shut up? By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. If you don't hear anything else that I say, don't miss this. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed. That word, worlds, there, we understand that God framed the universe. What was not seen came into being just when he spoke. But the word worlds there also means lifespan. It means of the time in which one has lived. One commentator says it's another way of saying the way things would go with anyone at any space of time. It's our lifespan. So by faith we understand, stay with me, it's a little deep, but I promise it's worth it. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. That word framed, hear this. I'm going to read it right out of the, the dictionary. The word frame there means its fundamental meaning is to put a thing in its appropriate condition, to mend, to repair, to refit, to mend that which is broken, to make a perfect fit suitable such as one should be deficit in no part to set in order. By faith, we understand that my lifespan can be mended, can be set in order, can be repaired, 
anybody besides me have some brokenness in their life. But by faith, we understand that I can be repaired, that I can be set back in order, that I can lack no good thing because of the word of God that's being spoken in my life. I'm going to frame my life with God's word. Oh, that's just good. Somebody tell me that's good. That's a good preach. That is a good preach. You see, we've got to get it down in our heart that his word works. We can get in this word and we can reframe our thinking. We can reframe our family structure. We can reframe our marriages. We can begin to speak his word and repair what's broken, mend what's broken, and reframe our whole thinking. Do you want a better life? A life that's free of chaos, a life of order and freedom. Then we need to reframe our world and we reframe it by speaking God's word. Let me read it to you in the Amplified. Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds during successive ages were framed, fashioned, put in order, and here's what I want you to hear, and equipped for their intended purpose by the word of God, so that what we see was not made out of things which are visible. Anybody besides me want to be equipped for their intended purpose, then we need to speak the word of God over our life because faith, total trust in God, confidence in his word has the ability to reframe our life, has the ability to mend what's broken, has the ability to set back in order what has been knocked out of order by pain and heartache and dysfunction. Can I just tell you the word of God is powerful, it's active, it will radically change your mind, your heart, your will, your emotions, it'll transform your life if you get it down deep inside of you and begin to speak the truth to silence the lies of the enemy that come to destroy you. You need to arrest the enemy, arrest his lies with the truth of God, take the authority that you have and begin to utilize it and wield the sword of the spirit to defeat him and bring him down. We have got to stop listening to his lies. We've got to stop letting him reframe our thinking. Some of you are here tonight and you are, you are just uh, crippled and disabled and, and, and live as a victim in self-pity and defeat because you have allowed the enemy's words to reframe your mind. You've allowed the enemy to become his lies to be the foundation you're building on instead of the truth of the word of God. And I'm telling you tonight, we need to tear out that foundation and begin putting a new one in. And we need to begin to build and reframe our life. I passed a house today and it was on this really little sweet street of cute little houses and and it looked like it had had a fire but it didn't what really happened is they had gutted the whole house and all that was left of this old home probably 150 years old was the frame and I thought to myself Lord that's what you need to do to my life just gut it just gut this house and start afresh just use the frame that you want me to be framed in and we'll start building from there and some of you need to say that to the Lord Lord, I've built on a faulty foundation. I've built on lies that the enemy has whispered to me that were spoken over me as a little boy or a little girl. I, I, I need to reframe by faith. By faith, I understand, Lord, that, the, that my, my lifespan can be reframed, can be mended, can be rebuilt, restored, repaired by the word of God. So that which is 
not seen. I can pull down from heaven. And as it is in heaven, it'll be here on earth. You see, his word is forever settled in heaven. We just have to call it down. We just have to come into agreement with it instead of with the enemy's lies. How can two walk together unless they're in agreement? One last thing I just, wanna, I just want to um, show you before you leave. Back to Hebrews chapter 11. As you keep going in that chapter, <clears throat> after he says all of this, it's interesting to me that in verse 8 he says, by faith Abraham, and everybody know Abraham, Abraham the old man who was way past childbearing years, do you have that picture in your head? He's a really old man, going to have a baby, everybody with me. His wife is past childbearing years, She's been through that change of life, if you will. Everybody have the picture. And they're believing God for a child. We read that story and we forget all that stuff. He's an old man. Men, you have the picture. Not 18. Old man. Barely can get out of bed, old man. Gonna have a baby. Do we know what it takes to have a baby? I'm sorry, I'm just drawing the picture. Gonna be good. You have it in your mind. So, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go from the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, in the land of promise, I love it, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him in the same promise. For he waited for the city which has its foundation, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed and she bore a child when she was just past the age. When she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him, as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky and the multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Now, you know that story. Abraham and his wife Sarah were, were barren. And his name was not Abraham at that point. It was Abram. And Sarai. And, and, and they were sad. It was not a good thing in, in, in that time to be barren and not be able to have children. And, and they wanted a child. And God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. That he would have descendants that, it, that were as numerous as the sand and the sea. And, 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 and Abraham, the, the Bible says, you know, they, they heard God. God said it to them. God spoke his word to them. Well, now Abraham, instead of taking God at his word, what did he do? He started to make it happen his way, and he, he, he didn't, he, Sarah couldn't get pregnant, so he went and he was with his, with his servant. She gets pregnant, that's where they have Ishmael. I'm sure God is up there saying, Abraham, why don't you just do it my way? I can't even tell you how many times I've heard the Lord say, Rhea why don't you just do it my way? My word works. But Abraham took it into his own hands, and you know it didn't turn out well. And 24 years, 24 years, God spoke that promise 
24 years prior. Some of you, God gave you a promise last week and you're ticked off at him because he didn't bring it to fruition and you haven't even waited 24 years. 24 years Abraham is waiting for God's promise, but God's promises never fail. 24 years, what changed? I wanted to know, we talked about this with the team, I wanted to know what suddenly changed in, 20, in the year 25. Do you know what it was? When he's 24, God took him out and he showed him the stars of the sky. And he said, Abraham, your descendants are going to be as many as the stars in this sky. And then shortly thereafter, God changes Abraham's, Abram's name to Abraham. Abraham means father of many nations. Are you with me? 24 years of Abram. Year 24, God shows him all the stars in the sky because now he's putting it in his imagination what could possibly be, drawing a picture for him. You see, that's what happens with the rhema. God shows you something and he draws a picture in your spirit and it gets down deep and you can't, you're like a dog with a bone. This is my promise. That you mean this, Lord. You painted the picture. And all of a sudden, the Bible says that Abraham, Abram believed God and suddenly God changes his name and says, Abraham, now when Abraham is going out, he's introducing himself saying, hi, I'm Abraham. I'm the father of many nations. Sarah, Sarai gets her name changed and her name is Sarah and it means I am the mother of many princes. Oh, can you imagine every time they said their name, Abraham, time for dinner, father of many nations, time for dinner. He's getting that deep in his spirit. God said it. I'm the father of many nations. I am. Let me introduce myself to you. I'm the father of many nations. And he is speaking what God said to him. He's speaking the picture God painted in front of him. And then, bam, surprise, 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 Sarah's pregnant. And the promise is fulfilled. And I believe. It's because Abraham believed God. And he started to say what God was saying. You see, in one last scripture for you before we go, turn it over, to, turn your scriptures over to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast. Somebody say hold fast. Let us hold fast. That word means to take possession. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful can i tell you he is faithful he is faithful even somebody needs to hear this god scripture says is faithful even when we are faithless because he cannot deny himself faithful is his character it's who he is he does not change like the sifting sand. I'm going to tell you what, I can be up and down and all over the place. I can change like the sifting sand. Not my God. He does not change. Who he says he is, he is and he is faithful. And he will not change. And just because you are faithless, just because you don't believe in him, he'll still remain faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. Back to that Hebrews chapter 11, it does say, without faith, without total trust, without believing he's who he says he is and he'll do what he says he'll do, it's impossible to please God. Because those who believe in God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
So let us hold fast to the confession. That word confession is what I want to look at just in closing. The word confession there means to say the same thing as God. To say the same thing as. We've talked a million times about how the Bible says that the word of God is a double-edged sword. And I've told you it means a two-mouthed sword. That when God spoke it, he spoke it with his mouth. And that when you and I confess it, when we say the same thing as God, we add our mouth to it and it becomes a double-edged sword, a weapon. The double-edged sword is the most deadly weapon that there was in Bible times. It did damage going in. It did damage coming up. It did damage going down. It was a deadly, deadly weapon. And that's the picture that God is drawing when he says, my word is a double-edged sword. When you add your mouth to it, it becomes a deadly weapon. It becomes the sword of the spirit is the only offensive weapon in the armor of God. And what he's saying is, this is how you win your battles. You win it with the double-edged sword. Put your mouth to my word. You come into agreement with my word. You say the same thing as, as I say. You hold fast. You possess what you're saying hold fast take possession of the confession of your hope without wavering without wavering I believe he's who he says he is and I believe he'll do what he says he'll do for he who promised is faithful Rick Renner translates this passage by saying, let us come into agreement with God and then begin to speak what he says, holding tightly to what we confess and refusing to let anyone take it from us. Some of you are saying, well, Rhea, that sounds like spiritual witchcraft for me and what happens when God doesn't? And what if he doesn't? And I've seen a lot of people walk away from faith because they're believing this stuff and then they get disappointed. Here's what I want to say to that. How's it working for you now? Isn't anything an improvement? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I won't see fulfillment of everything I'm wanting. This isn't to get Cadillacs, can I tell you? This isn't to get a bigger bank account, can I tell you that? This is saying, Lord, you promised me that if I'm not anxious about anything, but through prayer, petition, and with thanksgiving, if I just present my request to you, that you will in turn guard my heart and my mind with peace that passes all understanding. Thank you, Lord. I'm holding on to my confession that I believe that peace that passes all understanding will be my inheritance right now, that you're going to flood my soul with it right now in the name of Jesus. That's the kind of stuff you can, you can secure and walk in. You want a Cadillac, go put a down payment on one and work hard to get one. So some of you are saying, Rhea, I don't, I don't really agree with that. Well, let me just show you one last thing. Hebrews, and this is the last thing before we leave. Hebrews 13, verse 5. And Lord, give revelation here. I'm going to read it from the voice. I really like that translation here. He says, he has said, and he's talking about God. And he's quoting something that God had said in the Old Testament. He said, he has said, I will never leave you, and I will always be by your side. 
And then he goes on to say, because of this promise, we may boldly say, the Lord is my help. I won't be afraid of anything. How can anyone harm me? J.B. Phillips says, God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. We, therefore, can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see what he's saying? God has said this, that I won't ever leave you and I won't ever forsake you. I think it's Paul. I don't know who it is that's writing. I think it's Paul. And he says, so because God has said that, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear or dread or be terrified. What can man do to me? You see how he's holding on to the confession. He is saying, say the same thing as God. Take possession of that. Speak some life with your mouth. You have the power to do it. Good stuff, isn't it? I just want to read you a quote by Corey Tim Boom before I let you go. I saw it this week. I thought it was so good. She said, this is Corey Tim Boom. She says, faith sees the invisible, believes the unbelievable, and receives the impossible. We've got to keep in mind the Bible says that, that um, uh, the Bible says that, that, that this things of the spirit are spiritually discerned, and the natural man cannot understand it. And sometimes we, we come to church and we, we come to Bible study and we, 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 we approach the word in the natural man thinking that we have a natural God. Can I tell you what? We have a supernatural God. He functions outside the natural. We can't limit him in the natural. And the Bible says that the things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned, and the natural man can't understand them. God is so much bigger than the natural. And, and what we have to understand is that we are pulling what is what is. Uh, Faith calls things that are not as though they were. That, that, that faith is the evidence of things unseen. That we are calling, that we are working in the supernatural realm, calling them that, is, that are not as though they were. We have a supernatural God we're working with. And I'm expecting supernatural things in my life, not natural. If you want a natural God, you're rocking with your bad self. But I have a supernatural one, and he's pretty awesome.